A. Jr. here. Thanks for hitting play. Want to give a quick shout out to those sharing this podcast in Ohio, Illinois, California. Those shares go a long way. Would you hit the share button? We've hit some pretty controversial stuff these last few episodes, haven't we? And it doesn't stop on this one. So warning, this isn't politically correct. This is not popular opinion. It's not normal, but normal isn't working. Hope you stay with. I had a friend growing up who, uh, his, his mom, she was a scary woman. Um, she said, she said, oh, this word just irks me. I wonder how, what your feelings on it. How do you feel about the word submission? Submission. Ugh. Bother you a little bit? Going to rub you the wrong way, make you a little uneasy? You know, for those of us who it does bother, and, and I'm with you, there may be a reason that it bothers you. You know, maybe you were under bad leadership. You just had a terrible work environment with a tyrant of a boss who was trying to put everyone in submission. Or we've seen couch potato husbands, you know, grab a hold of scripture and use it and abuse it to make themselves the overlord of their house. You know, using submission as a means for their own selfish laziness, kind of like the job of the hut of the house, you know, lording over everybody. Problem is, as regardless of our experience, maybe bad experience with this word, regardless of how much this word may make us cringe, when we fail to embrace healthy submission, we ourselves become intolerable. And so there's this real tension here. Because we don't like submission. It's become this very dirty word. It's been abused. At the same time, this is the key to our success. Successful leadership, successful careers, successful marriages, successful families. Like the life we want comes from unleashing the power of this idea. So how do we go about this? I'm glad you asked. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is where we're at today. Really encourage you to grab a Bible. And a lot of people are using their phones now. Bible's on there. That's, that's fantastic. Uh, right now the Bridge App Bible isn't working. It's driving me nuts. We have like several staff arguing with Apple and our app developer, and so the Bible's not working on our app right now, uh, but you can look it up on uh, Google Bible Gateway. It's a great place to get the Bible. But 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is where we're at. Back in January, we started this series of reset. After 2020, we're like, hey, let's just hit the reset button on what's going on in our life right now, because uh, a lot of our lives just looked not so great after 2020. And so we've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians. Around Easter time, or actually right at Easter, we took a break for about six, seven weeks to tackle some popular questions that a lot of us, a lot of our friends are asking. But now we're getting back into 1 Corinthians, and, and we, uh, we're in chapter 11. A difficult chapter at that. This is one of those passages in Scripture that people will often read and dismiss it as being cultural. Because there's going to be some things that we're going to read today that we're not going to like. And so the tendency is to go, that's just cultural which is really, really dangerous when we approach Scripture that way. See, it's true. The Bible was written in a specific culture to specific people dealing with specific problems in their specific culture. And so part of studying the Bible, starting Scripture, is to understand the context and the culture that was, was going on at the time. What can happen, though, and it happens so much with 1 Corinthians 11, is people will read certain passages and they'll go, well, that was cultural for back then, so it doesn't apply to me today. But my question is always, well, then why would God put it in here? Why is it in the, why is it in the Scripture then? It's here for a reason. And it's really dangerous to just kind of pick and choose and then you know, make the excuse, no, well, that's cultural. Oh, I like that. That's not cultural. But yeah, I don't like that. That's, that's cultural. Because then we could do that with anything in Scripture. 
We can just change the Bible to our own fallen opinions and our own fallen agendas. And then really, if you think about it, make ourselves God. Just kind of changing God's word to our liking, and then we're God. Or culture is God. And so we can't do that. Our job, as we, as we open up the Bible, is to take a passage and boil it down to the theological principle. Like, oh, sure, there's lots of cultural parts in here. Um, but there's always a theological principle that's driving the text. And so it's our job as we read this and study is to boil it down to the theological principle that's driving the text. And I know we're getting kind of technical here. It's like a, like a Bible class. But it is really important to understand that and use that lens as we, as we read 1 Corinthians 11. Because, again, there's some stuff in this chapter that is cultural. Like, for example, um, it says in here that men shouldn't have long hair. Well, the preacher today has long hair, so this text must be cultural. Like, okay, sure, but there's a theological truth that's driving that. And so we got to find that. We're going to have to work for it today. And I hope you're up for the task. I, this, is like, this is fun to me. I know a lot of people are like, this is just very technical. This is kind of fun for me, and hopefully, hopefully we can make it fun for you as well. Now, here's the plan. We're just going to jump in. We're going to unpack the text. We're going to boil it down. We're going to get those theological truths. And then we'll come out of that and talk about the lovely concept of submission. And I'll say this too. I, you know, I, I'm not going to use this text to berate those of us who struggle with submission. I will say it is a serious problem in our lives, one that we need to get over if we claim to follow Jesus. Lack of submission is at the core of many of the issues that we deal with, especially relationally. But I probably won't convince you of that today, especially in one sermon. And that's okay. I, I understand that. So I'm not going to get up here and like get all fired up and preach, you know, fire and brimstone and go after you and berate you and try to break your spirit and get you to submit. I'm not going to do that. At the same time, I'm just going to teach what's in here. And I, I can't redefine, you know, the terms to make it more palatable. Sometimes preachers will do this, you know, they go, okay, well, submission, you know, we, you know, we don't like submission. So let me redefine it so that we can make it more palatable and redefine it so that we make all feel, all feel better. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to try to sell submission to you. You know, I, I'm not a good salesman anyway. I'm not going to try to make it sound nice and change the meetings so that you like it. That's just, that would be wrong for me. That, that would be harmful. And I respect you way too much to do that. I guess it's just kind of my way of saying, I'm just going to teach what's in here. And then you can take it for what it's worth and do with it what you will. All right, that work. And I got to say this too. I, um, we've hit some tough topics these last few weeks, haven't we? Now, our, church has, our church has responded so graciously and kind. And that means so much to me. I was sitting, I was up at camp. Uh, this weekend, I was sitting around a fire with my brother-in-law, and, uh, and he said to me, he's like, man, we've, we've hit some, like, tough topics these last few weeks, like LGBTQ, and, you know, is there only one way to heaven, like, exclusivity, all of that. I was like, yeah. He's like, what are you talking about this weekend? He's like, submission. He's like, oh, wow. You know, and so I just got to say, as one who doesn't necessarily itch to, like, get up here in the first place, much less talk about tough stuff, it can be grueling. Um, but I have been so blessed by you, and I'm so grateful for you, and I appreciate the encouragement, and I really do mean that. I love you. Thank you for, for handling these topics so graciously. And so I'm going into this confident that, yeah, we're going to be fine. Maybe we'll disagree on some of this stuff, but we'll just be just fine. So here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And as the lens of Scripture zooms in, we find ourselves in a place that we've been in since January. We're in, we're in Corinth, Greece. The Grecian hills roll over the, the landscape and make this perfect backdrop from the sea. In fact, from the seaboard, it's as if the, the hills just pop right out of the Mediterranean Sea. But just between the beach and the hills sits this quaint little limestone city, a city filled with tea cafes and tapestry shops and ornate temples and those seedy little alleyways that sailors 
find themselves looking for an escape. This is a city with a reputation. It's sex city, it's party city, it's STD city. It's a very divided city. And the real shame is the little church that meets just a few blocks from the main strip looks just like the community around it in many ways. Inside the church, there's lots of fighting going on, lots of competition. There's pending lawsuits going on in the church. There's passive aggression. There's hurt feelings. There's cliques. But the church is just illustrative of what's going on in home. The marriages are not enjoyable, to say the least. There's bitterness. There's words left unsaid. There's walking on eggshells at home. There's saving faces. As a result, the kids are pulling away from their parents. Gatherings with the in-laws are awkward and tense. It's forced smiles. Yet there they sit in church. And to each person sitting in that church, their issue is their spouse. Their issue is their in-law. Their issue is their boss. Their issue is their kid that's pulling away. Their issue is their friend that doesn't want to be close anymore. Each of them sitting in church feel like, believe really with their whole heart, their issue is somebody else. And they open up this letter and they read these words from their old friend Paul, who they very much trust. And Paul writes this. He writes, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. Now this is where a lot of people will start reading 1 Corinthians 11 and they'll go, okay, this chapter is not for me because we're talking about traditions. I'm not a traditional person. Paul's just going to talk about traditions this whole chapter. And so we just kind of check out this must all be cultural. The, the uh, word for traditions here is really the word teachings, though. And so Paul's not saying, you know, hey, great job being traditional. Hold on to those traditions that I gave you. No, he's saying, you've done very well with holding on to the teachings that I've taught you. And then he says this. This is an ugly verse for a lot of people, but hang in there. He says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Baby doesn't even like this verse. Totally get it. This doesn't taste so good today, does it? Like we want to look at this, we want to go, okay, well, this is cultural, of course. Well, at least the middle part of it is cultural. You know, so, so we're not going to talk about it. And if we do talk about it, we're just going to kind of explain this away. And that, that's, that's the temptation. That, 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 that's also why many Christian families, come on, let's just be honest. That's why many Christian families don't look very different than non-Christian families. So as we consider Paul's words here, let's just, let's just remember the world that really pushes against this and demonizes this is a world with a 50% divorce rate. And of those 50% that do stay married, we would not want the majority of those marriages that actually make it. The truth is, a lot of marriages around town that really do make it, come on, a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them are, are miserable. Passive husbands, lazy husbands, Insufferable wives, frustration, fighting. And so we can look at this and go, okay, this seems so wrong. This is not normal. But I would say, yeah, but normal isn't working, is it? Normal is divorce. Normal is fighting. Normal is miserable. So wouldn't it make sense that Jesus would go, I'm going to push you to something different here. Here's how you're going to stand out. Here's how you're going to be different. Yeah, it might be weird, but normal isn't working. Okay, this is still, still hard to swallow, though, and I totally get it. I got three girls. You better believe I'm going to raise them, and I am raising them to be strong, courageous women who lead out an adventure. I got a type A personality wife. I don't know if you've met her. She is type A, and she is far better than me at most things. 
far more likable than I am. She is definitely more intelligent than I am. And so for me, I'll read this verse and I'll go, I don't know, Paul, you haven't met Nicole. She'd make a much prettier, better, more intelligent head than I would. But let's just give this a chance. And let's just, let's boil it, let's do our job, boil it down to the theological principle and see what we get from it. The first thing that we got to understand in this verse is the last part. The head of Christ is God. So we have the head of Jesus is the Father. The head of Jesus is the Father. No. Theologically, we must under, and this is so foundational. Theologically, we must understand there is submission within the Trinity, and this is so huge. So, as Christians, and we just sang about this in, in, in the worship song, as Christians, we believe in God, three persons, one in essence, perfect unity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And within that Trinity, we call it the Trinity, within the Trinity, there is submission. Jesus submitted to the Father. Jesus, when he was on earth, he said, Not my will, but my Father's will. He said, I was sent by my Father. And so Jesus submits to the Father. The Holy Spirit submits to Jesus. Jesus said, I am sending you the Holy Spirit. And so there's this submission within the Trinity. But within that submission, there's also a reciprocal service. Some would even call it a mutual submission. So Jesus submits to the Father, but the Father glorifies Jesus. The Father puts Jesus at the most exalted place in the universe. Even though Jesus submitted to the Father, the Father turns around and exalts the Son. The Holy Spirit submits to Jesus, but Jesus says, I'm sending you someone better than me. Same thing. Holy Spirit submits, but Jesus lifts up the Holy Spirit. God is in perfect unity, large part because of submission. And so God asks, hey, I, I, I want you to do the same. That's the idea of headship. Headship means the person with which the responsibility falls on. This does not mean they are most capable this does not mean they are the most intelligent, and this does not mean they have the most potential, because that is not me. I am the head of my home. I am not the most capable. I am not the most intelligent. Headship simply means I'm the one who's going to take responsibility for my home. Just as Jesus Christ took responsibility for us and sacrificed for us, so men take responsibility for the family. Now, whether or not we like that, guys, it doesn't matter. We will answer for our families. Men, we're going to answer for the cultures in our homes. We're going to answer for the marriages that we have. And we're going to answer for the kids that we raise. We're going to answer for all of that because the responsibility falls on someone. And God says that's on you, men. When Adam and Eve, when they sinned in the garden, and God came looking for Adam and Eve. Do you remember this? Do you remember in Genesis? God came and calling someone's name. Do you remember that? Whose name was he calling? He's calling Adam. Adam, Adam, I want to talk to you first. You're going to answer. And guys, it's going to happen with us. But with submission in marriage, there's also this reciprocal service. So Nicole submits to me, but I lift her needs, and I'm not perfect at this, but I try to lift her needs above my own. I try to put her best interest before my own. And we learn this from God. Jesus submits to the Father. The Father elevates the Son. Same idea with Nicole and I. She submits to me, and I put her interest before mine. Now, this doesn't mean I do whatever Nicole wants. For some guys do this. Some like, Christian guys will, will talk to me, and, uh, and uh, they're whipped by their wives. And, and they'll say something you know, like, well, Junior, I'm a servant leader. Like, no, you're not. You're a lazy coward. You're not leading anyone or anything. You're just, whoosh, you're just whipped. And that's frustrating to women. I tell my girls this all the time. I say, girls, don't look for the guy who won't stand up to you because you will never be better. Don't look for that guy. He probably says the nicest things, but don't look for the guy who won't lead because he will ruin you. He will frustrate you. That's a boy, and boys ruin men. You look for men. 
Men push, men make women better, and women make men better. And men lead, and men sacrifice. And so there are times where I go against what Nicole wants. I will hear her out, we will talk, but sometimes I'm convinced, no, I, I, I think this is better for our family, I think this is better for you in the long run. It doesn't happen often, but it has happened before. And it's this beautiful dance as Nicole submits to me, and I put her interest before mine, it's like this beautiful dance as we, as we come together. It's a very, very peculiar way of doing marriage, but it is beautiful in action, and it is unifying, and it mirrors what is happening within the Trinity. That's the idea of headship. Okay, just boiling the text down, and you can do with it what you want. I know it doesn't sound great, but you can just do with it what you will. The, the uh, word for headship portrays responsibility, but it also portrays one, another thing. It portrays uh, honor. Because it is where the responsibility falls, it is a place of, of honor. So Jesus honored the Father. He didn't have to, but he did. Man is to honor Christ. No argument there. And wives are to honor husband. And again, I know that it just tastes bad even coming out of my mouth. I know it doesn't sound right, but this is what the text is saying. My wife and I right now are reading this uh, very slowly reading. I think we've been reading it for a year now. Are really slowly reading this book called Love and Respect, written by a brilliant psychologist who talks about how men's needs and women's needs are very, very different. And you have to understand that if you're going to do a marriage together. And so one of the uh, themes of the book is that men, one of the things that men need is respect. And one of the things that women need is love. Now, men still want to be loved, but not as much as respected. So, for example, uh, Jordan here. I love Jordan. Maybe that sounds weird, but I tell him that all the time. I love you. Uh, he's, he's just a good guy, and I love him. But if you were to ask Jordan, do you, do you want Junior to love you or respect you? Jordan's going to say, I don't really care if Junior loves me or not, but I would like to be respected by him. So men desire respect. And women still want to be respected, of course, but women also want to know that, that you care about them. And that's totally Nicole and I. As we're going through this book, Nicole's like, yeah, that, I would rather be loved. Yeah, I want to be respected, but like, love is like the big thing to me. And I'm more of like, yeah, but respect's like the big thing to me. And so it's my responsibility as her husband to remind her of my, of my love for her over and over and over and speak her love language and show her that I care for her. I, on the other hand, I don't really want love as much as respect. I want to know that my wife respects me. I want her to see me in a good light. And I want to be somebody that my wife admires. I, I want to be honored by her. And statistically, if you were to dive deep into successful, fun marriages, the kind of you know, fun marriages that you would like to have, you would find this principle playing out. The husband proves his love for his wife over and over and over, and the wife responds by giving her husband honor and respecting her husband. Again, it's this, it's this dance that brings the two together. On the opposite way, and this is most marriages, when a wife feels unloved, she doesn't respect her husband. You can't blame her. And when a husband is disrespected, dishonored by his wife, he has trouble showing much affection toward her. He doesn't even want to lead. And instead of this dance of coming together, instead it's this spiral away from each other. My wife and I ran into this um, two days ago. We were up at camp. And um, there's something happening that day that uh, wasn't like this big deal, but um, needed to be talked about. And uh, as the husband, responsibility's on me, so I bring it up to my wife. I didn't bring it up, I'll confess to you, I didn't bring it up in the most loving way. So the way that I brought it up to Nicole, it was not showing her much love in that moment. And since I wasn't showing her much love during this confrontation, she pushed back, and I felt disrespected. So she was feeling unloved, I was feeling disrespected, and so we had this friction going. 
Now, thankfully, just a couple minutes later, because we've been married 10 years, many will figure each other out. Just a few minutes later, we were able to you know, confess and figure this out when I was showing love and she was showing respect and everything was all good. But for a minute there, it was spiraling as I was feeling disrespected and she was feeling unloved. And that is a lot of marriages, operating system of a lot of marriages. This is at the core of many, many marital issues. So as distasteful as this verse really seems, Paul might be onto something here. It's definitely weird, but again, normal isn't working. Let's keep going. Verse 4. It says, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Uh, I grew up in a Christian circle that said um, it's disrespectful for guys to pray with their hats on. Anyone here grew up being told that at all? Yeah, a lot, a lot of heads are, yeah, a lot of hands, a lot of heads are nodding right now. A bunch of us grew up like that. Um, some people don't like hats in church, and, and that's okay. Just an opinion, um, and that's a fine opinion to have. In fact, when uh, Brian Nelson, Pastor Brian, first came here, him and I started on staff 11 years ago now, and I would wear a hat on stage. I used to play bass, and he would lead, and he hated that I wore a hat because you're wearing a hat in church. He just didn't like hats in church, and that's a fine opinion to have. The thing of it is, though, I've seen, and Brian wasn't doing this, but a lot of people will defend because we have our opinions and then we want to have Scripture back up our opinions. So I've seen a lot of people then back up their opinion on no hats in church with this verse. Problem is, you'd also have to apply the next verse, too. And the next verse says, But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Okay, a lot of cultural stuff going on here. My Christian school uh, would, would tell us guys growing up, uh, they would say, guys, you cannot, you cannot wear your hat in church. You cannot pray with your hat on because of what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians. But the problem that I had with that is the women weren't wearing head coverings in the church. And 1 Corinthians also says that the very next verse. And I don't know about you, but when it comes to Scripture, for me, it's all or nothing. We're not going to pick and choose here. It's all or nothing. Either men shouldn't wear hats in church and women should, or neither, and this is all cultural. Now, for example, I, uh, last uh, couple days ago, I was at an Amish bakery. My daughter's really getting into like Amish culture, so in a couple weeks, I'm going to take her to an Amish village. And uh, we went to this Amish bakery, and I was reminded that Amish, Amish uh, women really apply this verse. When they go to church, they have head coverings. A right now ranter said, "Oh, the campus, I have an ex-Mennonite teaching over there right now, and his wife grew up wearing a head covering in church because the Mennonites take this verse very literal, too. They, they own this verse, that women should wear head coverings in church. I think it's kind of cool. I think it's special. But if you look around, obviously we're not doing this, and we need to. So next week, we are offering bridge head coverings with our apparel <laughs> in the lobby, and you can get yours while they last. I'm actually not knocking these at all. I've gotten a couple for Nicole. Not with the bridge logo on it, of course. Um, but I just, I, I think hair wraps are really cute. I, I love my wife's long hair, and I love it when she, like, puts her hair up and, and in a wrap. I just think it's really cute. But that's just my opinion. I can't, like, use this verse. Hey, babe, you got to wear a head wrap because of this verse. I can't do that. Of course, we believe this is cultural. But it is in here for a reason. And what do we have to do with this? We have to boil this down and get the theological principle that is driving this. So let's get that. Let's boil it down. It was very customary during this time for, for women uh, during Paul's time, especially around Corinth, to have longer hair and to wear a head covering. It was the style, and it still is in many parts of the world today. I'd, I'd even say in most parts, in most cultures, it's, it's still cultural. Now, history tells us that uh, there were various feminist movements during the Roman Empire. And some of these feminist movements pushed really good things. Uh, women, a lot of women during this time were seen as property. And so there were movements against that idea. And to, I, and to that I said, that's awesome. Yeah, let's march for that. 
But some of the feminist movements were, were pushing as far as to say that women are no different than men. And so what started happening was women were cutting their hair very, very, very short and removing their head coverings in order, it was their goal to look like men, to reject their femininity and, and to say, no, we're just like men. Uh, similar, thing, similar things happen today. Um, my wife, she brings up a good point. She says, she says, I don't understand feminism's push to, to make women to be like men. That's like saying men are better and that we should be like men. They're not better. I want to be a woman. I was like, yeah. For sure. That's exactly what what Paul is getting at here. It's not wrong for a woman to cut her hair short, you know, or to remove her head covering. But it is wrong to reject the principle behind it, that men and women are different. We're created differently for different purposes to complement each other. And and, and that actually works like Velcro. We we stick together better that way. But when we reject that that idea, it actually hurts us and hurts our relationships. And this is the principle that really drives the rest of the chapter. We are to embrace the roles that God gave us, to to embrace how God made us. And the more we do that, the more we embrace how God made us, the better off we are mentally, the better off we are spiritually, the better off we are relationally. We're just better off the more we embrace how God made us. But the more we reject how God made us, the more confused we get, the more stuck we get, the more miserable we become. That's the boiled down principle behind this whole text. It's this idea of, Rock your roll. I thought this was very creative. Rock your roll. Rock your roll. Women are friggin' awesome. Femininity is beautiful and awesome. Rock it. This doesn't mean you can't do things that guys like doing. Do that too. My wife will snowboard circles around me. She will wakeboard circles around me. But I love it when she'll throw on a dress then afterwards, and she just looks killer. And I love it. And she owns her femininity. I love how God made her. I hate how our society is trying to get girls to act all tough. Do away with femininity. It's like, you're kidding me? Why, why, would you, why would you get rid of something so amazing? Why get rid of that? Women, embrace the very powerful thing that God gave you. It's an incredible thing. And men, rock your role too. Don't deny it. Don't be passive like Adam. No, step up. Lead. Start sacrificing. Get good at sacrificing. And act like you're going to answer for it. Because you will. That's the principle that's driving this text. And it all leads to a verse that my dad loves quoting to me almost daily. And that is, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? My, my school used to really push this um, all the time. Uh, some of my uh, female teachers with short hair used to quote this to me. The problem is the next verse says that a woman's glory is in her long hair. So you had like women who had very short hair tell them, you can't have long hair, but they had short hair. It was like, Again, we're just picking and choosing verses. Again, this is, this is cultural. Yes, it is cultural. But the theological principle, there's a theological principle behind it. And we got to boil it down to that. And the theological principle behind that is, guys, we are to embrace masculinity. We're not to, we're not, we shouldn't try to look like women. Okay, yes, I have long hair. But I also have a beard. And I don't wear clothes that would confuse you with me being a woman. Hopefully you get that I'm a guy. Like if I started wearing capris and jellies and flats and throwing on some eyeshadow, not only would I look terrible, like I couldn't pull that off, but God would be saying to me, man, that's not how I made you. That's not how I made you. Rock your roll. You're a man. Act like a man. Now, this is not to say, hey, ladies, the more feminine you are, the more holy you are. That's not what I'm saying. And guys, you know, the more masculine you are, you know, the more holy you are. Not, Paul is not saying that at all. Some of us are going to be more masculine than others. Some of us are going to be more feminine than others. And that's totally, totally fine. 
And I realize even just saying that is not politically correct. Like I, I know that outside people be saying, Junior's really feeding some stereotypes here. But I have to teach the text for what it's saying. And this is what it says. Uh, verse 15 talks about how a woman's long hair being her glory. And again, that, that is cultural. That doesn't mean that you know, Paul, is, uh, Paul is against the, uh, the, the pixie cut or the Halle Berry haircut or the Karen, can I see your manager haircut. You know, to, to each, each their own. Everybody can wear their hair the way they want. Personally for me, I like my wife's long hair. She keeps it longer because I like it that way, and I appreciate that. But it would not be wrong for her to cut her hair short. But it would be wrong for her to reject how God made her and to say, no, I'm not going to try at all to be the way that God made me. That's the text, boiled down to the theological principle. And again, I know that is not popular opinion, but I will say, if we follow Jesus, this should be something that we teach our kids, that they are at their best. They are at their best mentally. They are at their best spiritually. They are at their best uh, emotionally. They are firing on all cylinders the more they embrace how God made them because God is perfect and made us differently. So a lot of cultural stuff in here. But the theology that drives it really matters. And tied into this whole text, though, is the idea of submission, headship. And I know we've seen it abused. Uh, we, we see it as a weakness. A lot of us, including me, just don't like the idea. And some of us sitting here don't want to talk about it. Others sitting here are going, Junior, can you maybe talk about it a little bit more? Because I think I disagree with you. Truth is, we got to hit the reset button on our whole view of submission, men and women alike. And so we're going to do that right now. Five things submission is not. Five things submission is not. Number one, submission is not an equality. It is not an equality. And again, whether this is in the home context, whether this is in an office context, whether this is in a church context, whether this is in a friendship context, because Paul tells us to submit one to another. We need to understand it is not an equality. Jesus isn't lesser than the Father, but Jesus submits to the Father. Jesus said, the Holy Spirit is better than me. But the Holy Spirit submits to Jesus. Submission has nothing, nothing to do with value. The difference in the roles acts like Velcro. They bring couples together. They bring churches together. They bring families together. They bring people together. Submission is not an equality. Do not buy that at all. Second thing submission is not is it's not agreement. It's not agreement. To submit doesn't mean you have to agree with them. So, for example, I... Um, I submit to the elders in this church. I submit to the lead pastor. And I will tell you, I don't agree with every little thing around here. I just don't. In fact, Thursday, Thursday afternoon, um, Jordan asked me to go into a meeting because he knew that I disagreed with everybody else in that meeting about something. There's something that we do that I was just like, I disagree with doing it. And so I went into that meeting and I fought my case and everybody is like everybody against me. And, uh, and I left that meeting and, um, and, and I did not get my way at all, at all. And I'm fine with that. In fact, the true test of submission is championing a decision you don't agree with. So I'm championing it. That's the true test. If you agree with everything your boss does at work, you don't have to submit. They're, they're doing everything you want. The real test is when you don't agree, can you still champion that? You don't have to agree. It's okay. It's all right. Uh, the third thing that submission is not is it's not forfeiting influence. I would actually agree that the opposite is, is true. Jesus submitted and is the most influential person who ever walked the planet. Growing up, I always knew my dad was head of the home. I knew my, my dad was responsible for the family. And I saw my mom submit to my dad, and I saw my dad constantly put her needs before his. Like I, I was very privileged to, as a kid to see a biblical marriage in action and, and how it operated, and that was so good for me. My dad was the head. 
But I always, for some reason, I always saw my mom as having more influence. I just always saw that. She was just more influential than my dad. Uh, she influenced my dad. She influenced us kids. She influenced our church. She was very gracious, very tactful. It was, it was like an art form for her. It was actually beautiful to see. Submission is not forfeiting influence. It's actually growing your influence. Healthy organizations do not promote anyone who doesn't submit. And they shouldn't. Submission grows your influence. Uh, the fourth thing, submission is not denying intellect. It's not denying intellect. I've, had, I've, I've heard people say to me, you know, well, I'm too intelligent to submit to my boss. What a dumb thing to say for such an intelligent person. Then <laughs> Jesus was intelligent, yet he lived in submission. Submission isn't saying, you know, well, the head is more intelligent. It's not saying that at all. It has nothing, 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 nothing to do with intelligent. And the fifth thing that submission is not is it's not silence. It's not silence. Sometimes we see submission as being like this wallflower, pushover, you know, getting steamrolled. No, absolutely not. Jesus was, was not silent. The Holy Spirit is not silent. It's not silence. In fact, to prove that submission isn't silence, come to my house. My wife and girls have far more things to say than I will. Yet they follow my lead, and I listen to them. And, and it's beautiful, and, and it's awesome how it plays out. Submission isn't silence. But submission is a calling. It's a calling. Regardless of our feelings, even regardless of our experiences, if you claim to follow Jesus, submission is a calling on your life, a calling that is repeated over and over and over and over and over in Scripture. I know the world may, may not accept it. The world may dismiss submission. The world may even call submission Neolithic. But we are a peculiar people. We live differently. Normal isn't working anyways. God has called us to submission. It is a calling. It is a calling to emulate the Trinity. A submission is, number two, a leadership quality. The greatest leader who ever walked this earth led under submission. It is a leadership quality. You can't be over what God has placed under you until you can be under what God has placed over you. So for me, I am not the first chair at the bridge, and I'm not an elder. So biblically, I'm called to submit. If I didn't submit, my leaders shouldn't listen to me. But they do listen to me because I submit. My, my submission actually enters me into more conversations because my submission fuels the leadership above me. They want to bring me into more conversations because of my submission. I fuel them. But when I reject submission... They don't want to bring me into those conversations, and they shouldn't want to, and I'm stuck. See, to lead, you must submit. If you can't submit, you, you shouldn't be leading anyway. Uh, submission is, number three, a gift. It's a gift. It's a gift you give others, for sure, but it's also a gift that you give yourself. There's peace in submission. So I will sit in a meeting, and I'll fight for something. Thursday afternoon, I'm fighting. You know, it's like me versus seven people in the conference room, and I'm fighting for something. I did not get my way. Guess what? I slept like a baby that night. I wasn't angry. I wasn't bitter. I was just submitting. I left that meeting going, that's fine. I'll champion you guys. That's great. It's a gift that I'm giving myself, and I have peace over it. I love how one woman put it to me. She said, submission is ducking so that God hits my husband. That's so good. She said, my husband, my husband and I will talk, and he'll get my perspective, and, and, and he'll, you know, he'll try to think through things that I'm thinking through, and we'll talk it through. But at the end, I just duck so that God just hits my husband if he gets it wrong, because the responsibility falls on him. It's, it's a gift. It's, it's a wonderful gift that you give others, but also yourself. And I will say, some of us would be a lot more happy. Some of us would have a lot more peace. And for some of us, life would be a lot less complicated if we championed submission more.
I've never met a happy person who rejects submission. I've never met a happy person who rejects submission. Never met them. Usually they are insufferable and they're really hard to be around. It's like a kid throwing a tantrum, pushing from their parents. They're just never happy. It's a gift you give yourself. I'm giving myself this peace. I give it to myself all the time. It's fantastic. Number four, submission is a display. It's a display. Submission is uh, it's a display. And I know it's a dirty word. It's no secret. Our world hates it. And that's okay. Because over and over and over in Scripture, God repeats, hey, you're going to be peculiar, guys. You're my peculiar treasure. You're my peculiar people. So we're to be peculiar. We're to be different, but in an attractive sort of way. So while out there, while outside the church, everyone is fighting submission and misery, and there's high divorce rates, and there's bitterness, and there's competition, and there's division, and there's fractured relationships, and there's all these big egos, we, on the other hand, in here, champion submission. Our marriages, our careers, our friendships, they are on display for the world to see. God's word works. Oh, it might not taste well sometimes, like today, but it works, and we are living displays of that. Submission is this peace-bringing, life-giving unifier. It is not easy, but it is effective. And those outside look in, and they look at us, and they think, yeah, they're peculiar. They believe some stuff that I can't really get on board with, but it's working for them. They're a lot happier. And look at their marriages. Look at their families. Look at their friendships. Look at their church. We are a display that God's word, it works. Number five, submission is an indicator. It's an indicator. Our, our submission, whether it's to a boss, whether it's to a leader, whether it's to a friend, whether it's to a church, whether it's to a spouse, our submission is an indicator of where our heart is really at. The truth is we either live in constant pushback and rebellion or we lean into submission. And that is a huge indicator of where you are at spiritually. I follow this, uh, I follow this girl on Instagram mainly because she says things that I just can't. And, uh, and it's fire. This girl is legit. Her Instagram name is uh, it's, um, uh, Feminine Not Feminist, which I think is hilarious. Very, very godly woman. She loves Jesus. She's very solid with scriptures. Uh, in fact, I want to bring her in here to speak sometime. Um, but uh, sometimes she says things that are a little strong and extreme. But she's got so many mic drop posts. And a few weeks ago, she posted this on Instagram. And I was like, Ugh! it hit me really hard. Look at this. It says, if you struggle with submission, maybe it's because you believe that authority is inherently better than service. Dang, that one hit me, like right in the face. Because I'm not naturally bent towards submission. I'm like a lot of you, I like pushing back. If I'm told I can't do something, guess what? I'm going to do it. <laughs> I was up at camp last summer, and, um, and it was during high school camp, and, uh, and you know the beach, everyone's at the beach. I took a rowboat out to the middle of the lake to do some fishing, and uh, then a storm was rolling in. I was like, oh, this is great, because the fish a lot of times bite right before a storm. So I'm out there, and, and every, all the high schoolers get called in, and this, this, old, uh, this old lifeguard, this old biddy starts like wave, you know, yelling at me and waving her, waving her arms. Hey, you need to come back in here. You need to come back in here. And I yelled back. I was like, I'm not a high schooler. I'm like, I'm mid-30s. can make this decision on my own. I'm going to stay out here. So she starts blowing her whistle. No, you can't. No, you can't. Get back in here. So I said, to prove, and this is so bad, I was like, to prove that I don't need to come back in, I am staying out here. So I stayed out there during like downpouring rain. I was, it was miserable. I didn't even want to be out there. I just had to prove to this old lady she couldn't tell me what to do. I got a problem with this. And Nicole made me realize this a couple of months ago. We were, we were leaving a beach, and, uh, and I was ragging on the lifeguards. I always get yelled at by the lifeguards every single time. Like when I go to the beach, I look for places, that beaches that don't have lifeguard huts. 
So I, we get in the car after I got yelled at by the lifeguards. And, uh, and so I'm just like, you know, I'm, I'm throwing a little bit of a tantrum in the car. I'm like, you know, they don't own the ocean, Nicole. They don't own the ocean. They can't tell me how far I can go out. And then, and then I got going on like big government and somehow I started complaining about my doctor. You know, he wants a checkup once a year. How about he does a checkup when I tell him that I want a checkup? He's my doctor. He's not my king. So I'm like, I'm throwing this little childish tantrum in the car. Lifeguards, government, you know, doctors. And, and Nicole in one sentence, she just shuts me down. <laughs> she looked at me and she goes, it sounds like you struggle with authority. And I told her to submit and be silent. <laughs> but no, she was right. She was right. It's that, it's that pride in me. The pride of believing that I should be in power. I should have the authority instead of championing something else. Instead of championing the thing that Jesus championed. Instead of living my life as a servant and knowing the art of submission. See, the truth is, how we approach submission is an indicator of our heart. It's an indicator of where we're at spiritually. Because God, who submits within the Trinity, asks us to do the same thing. But when we buck that, not only do we live in misery, but we reject the way of the cross. It's a lot more serious than we think. So the question that I want to leave with you today, and this is, this is our so what question. The question I want to leave with all of us today is, is this. Are you fueling or depleting the leadership above you? You do one or the other. You fuel leadership. You're, you're a joy to those in leadership above you. They love having you around and you better them and you fuel them. Or you deplete them and you're just a headache for those above you. See, I'll tell you what means the most to me as, as head of my house. It's, it's when my wife and I will talk about a decision. And she's type A. If you know her, she's got a lot to say. A lot of opinions. And she says them all. And I hear them all. But after our discussion, she will look at me often. Not always, but she'll often look at me and she'll say, Babe, you make the call. I trust you. I know your heart. I know you really love me. And I know you really love our family. You take the lead. I'm good at this point. In fact, she'll, she'll often say to me, and it's like this wonderful gift to me. She'll say, you're the man. I, I take the lead. I want you to lead. And that is so special for me. Not only is that honoring, but it fuels my leadership and it pushes me to do better, to be better, and to sacrifice more. Do you fuel those above you? Or do you deplete your boss's leadership? Yeah, they might be a terrible leader and maybe they shouldn't be in the chair that they're in, but that's not up to you. It doesn't matter. Are you fueling them or are you depleting them? I'll ask something that this world would hate me asking. I'm just going to ask it. Wives in here, are you honoring your husband? Are you honoring them? And husbands in here, are you, are you somebody worth honoring? Are you sacrificing? Wives, are you encouraging your husband to be a better leader and building him up? Or are you tearing him down? And husbands, are you living in such a way that your wife just doesn't have much to honor? See, all of us, are we fueling the leadership of those around us? Are we honoring them? Or are we just bucking everything and being critical at every turn and dragging our feet and mimicking the miserable world around us? See, this is really what submission boils down to. Are you fueling leaders or are you depleting them? What's got to change? Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, would you give it a share? It goes a long way. Also, don't forget to subscribe if you haven't yet. Hey, God has something for you today. Go after it. Blessings. Blessings.